0: We are text, verses 18 through 25. I know there are varying degrees of, of opinions and practice regarding this season insofar as how believers, how the church should celebrate Christmas, even if the church, if believers should celebrate it at all. And we certainly want to give liberty to those on either place. But I think in light of the season, it is fitting that we do come and look at a text such as this, because like it or not, much of our thoughts are directed to a text such as this. And so rather than just plow on through Luke, which is would be my tendency, we're going to back out and come here to... Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Matthew's gospel account, of course, one of four accounts of the life of of Jesus Christ, is, is written to Jewish believers. And it's written as an affirmation to affirm to them that their faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah has not been misplaced. And so he writes this account... We recognize it to a largely Jewish audience by much of the, the much of what he writes. He will explain um, references to the Old Testament scriptures being fulfilled that those from a Jewish background understand. Well, the Old Testament scriptures are in fact being fulfilled, and he goes to some length here to demonstrate that Jesus is the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. Even here. In 1 1, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the record of, of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the promised one, the anointed one, son of David. And then he goes on through the genealogy, the son of Abraham, and traces from Abraham up through Joseph in verse um, 16 of chapter 1. So so Matthew is not hiding this thing at all. He's being very straightforward about who Jesus is. So as an assurance to those who would read this book initially, particularly a Jewish audience, Jewish audience that had embraced Christ, but needing to be reminded, as we all do, that your faith has not been misplaced. Your faith is rightfully placed in Jesus as the Messiah. But to those of us who are not Jewish, <clears throat> probably most, if not all of us, certainly a large percentage of us here, is Jesus' arrival really so significant an event as, as the writer here in Matthew would have us to, to believe? And so we come to his story and recognizing the, con- the story, his story, in the context of the Holy Scriptures, I think we can answer that question that truly it is. A significant event. So begin reading with me here in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to the end of the chapter, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. For he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Well, one thing that should come to mind for those of you who have been tracking week by week as we go through Luke's gospel, we should come to this conclusion through studying Luke's gospel, which is again another account of the life of Jesus. That is that Jesus of Nazareth is an extraordinary person. He is an extraordinary person. He is not to be regarded as an ordinary individual. He's unique. He is one of a kind. And in light of that, in light of the fact that Jesus Christ, this Jesus of Nazareth, is so extraordinary, He is so unique, the message that we proclaim about Him The Christian message, the message of the gospel, is a very demanding message. When we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are calling for men and for women to do drastic things. We're calling for them to forsake their own life. We're calling for them to forsake even all and devote themselves exclusively to this person, Jesus Christ. Commit their life to following after Him. That's pretty dramatic. It's a pretty demanding message. We understand as Christians, because you know, we've, we're versed in this, we understand the reason behind that. We understand the rightness, the appropriateness of that message. Of calling men to forsake all and to pursue Christ. Because we understand what the scripture teaches. And that is that there is reconciliation. And that there is peace with God no other way than through Him. So we proclaim the message, pursue Christ, follow Christ, deny yourself, forsake all. And it comes in a, in a variety of terminologies, it comes in a variety of terminologies, even within the context of the Old Testament Scripture. In a nutshell, it's this, repent and believe. And it comes in various expressions throughout the Scripture. So we understand the reason of calling people to something so drastic but is it really reasonable is it reasonable you know is there more to be found in this story and in this season more than a sentimental consideration of a baby who is born in a barn is there anything more that we need to be considering and and thrusting before people than just this sentimental nice story? Or is all that is made of Jesus Christ blown out of proportion? You know, especially this holiday season. No, it seems there's much, in one sense, that is made of Christmas, but in the other, on the other hand, much of what is going on in the world and our culture has very little of anything to do with Christmas, does it? Or is what we have of the story of Jesus as given to us in the scriptures, is it a mixing of? Reality with legend and myth and folklore and all these other type things. Well, the biblical record, of course, would refute any such notion that there's any mixing of of legend and myth. And that Jesus Christ coming, his birth is an event of utmost importance because of who he is, because of what he accomplishes. So, we want to consider this morning the importance of Jesus coming. The reasons that we should consider jesus birth as a, an event of utmost importance and that we call men to give a right consideration of these things to give a right consideration of Jesus Christ, and ultimately to come and bow and worship before him so that 's our intent this morning and I will, I will just mention to you as I, I put this sermon together on Wednesday and I wasn't feeling very good on Wednesday but I, I, as far as actually putting it on paper I was there by Wednesday and just kind of trudging through uh, just fighting, feeling batteries. why we were not here Wednesday night and then uh, yesterday on the Bristol Herald Corps the Bristol paper here on the Saturday edition they have a, a column that has a a little sermon, Saturday sermon on the on the edition. So I looked just glanced, I didn't read the thing, but I looked at this pastor, I don't even know who it was, this pastor's article, and he had four points that had pertained to basically this text here. And I've only got three. But three of his four are mine. <laughs> so on the other hand, and not feeling good and putting a sermon together, it's nice to know that That I'm not too far off base here. That somebody else is seeing the same things that I'm seeing. And so we're going to focus upon that. The reasons that we ought to regard and to give a proper consideration to Christ's birth, to Christ's coming, Christ's incarnation. First of all, we have to consider the supernatural conception, the supernatural conception of Jesus Christ. And again, the biblical message here is very clear. That this is no ordinary event. This doesn't happen like things normally happen. This is an extraordinary event, an extraordinary conception. Jesus' entry into the human race was by extraordinary circumstances. Now the biblical writers, basically Matthew and Luke, our gospel writers, are consistent in their insistence upon a miraculous conception of Jesus Christ. That a miracle took place. Verse 18 of our, our text here reminds us here. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together. She was found to be with child. Verse 23. And here you have an Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled. The virgin shall be with child. And here from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 25. He kept her, speaking of Joseph, he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son. Then we have verses, note to the genealogy here verses 2 and following. Notes here, just, I'm not going to read all this, but we are going to note some of this. Verse, verse 2 Abraham was the father of Isaac. Abraham, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, on it goes. This was the father of this one, this was the father of this one, on and on it goes until you get all the way down to verse sixteen. Then it says in verse sixteen, Jacob was the father of Joseph, and here the wording changes. The husband of Mary doesn't say Joseph the father of Jesus. It says, By whom Jesus was born, Mary, who is called the Messiah. So here you have, through through the account here by Matthew, this insistence that this was a miraculous conception, that Mary was, in fact, a virgin. We'll not turn there, but Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Same thing. The gospel message is very clear. This was a virgin who, gave, who conceived this child and eventually, of course, gave birth. Now, the critics' response is, let's get real. How does that happen? Is that really possible? It just, in fact, doesn't happen. It can't happen. You know, so that when, they, when the critic comes to the question, how is it really possible? Actually, they're not too far removed from Mary's question, are they? Look over with me in Luke chapter 1. Luke was, uh, Mary was no scientist. She asked the same question. <clears throat> She's had this angelic visitation in Luke chapter 1. The angel said to her, verse 30, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, the Lord God, who will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And you know, I've made note of this before, just... Hear all these glorious expressions about who this child is, and where's Mary on this thing? Let's go back to the first thing you said here. Verse 34. Mary said to the angel, How can this be? I'm a virgin. You know, forget all this glorious about this, this son of David. Forget this a minute. Let's go back. How's this happen? How can this be? And certainly here, not the question of unbelief, but just an honest question. How's it happened? Well, the biblical explanation is according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. That is of the Holy Spirit. It is a work of the Holy Spirit. And then in Luke chapter 1, verse 35. I know we're we're going back and forth here between Luke 1 and Matthew 1 a little bit. But in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, this is what he says. This Holy Spirit... The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most, Shadow, Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So how do we break this thing down and, and understand it? We don't. Listen, there's great mystery in human, natural human conception in life. I'm not going to dare to venture into the details of this. Has it happened? Well, all we can glean from this is it is a work of the Spirit of God. It is an act of divine omnipotence. It is the power of God to do this. To some way create within the womb of Mary and to place within the womb of Mary this one who is God. And we don't have the details. And so we're left kind of scratching our head about it. And that's okay, but we'll not deny it. Because again, the scripture is very clear about this. So then the question that arises from the critic is this. Well then, I know the, the gospel accounts say this. I know Matthew says this. I know Luke says this. Well, what's the natural question for that? We well, can you trust these guys. Are the gospel accounts accurate? And the simple answer to that is this, that the gospel accounts prove themselves to be reliable time after time after time and other information that is verifiable from outside sources. You go and you see what the the other sources say about things that are recorded in the Scriptures, particularly in the Gospel of Luke. And you find Luke with great details and every time Luke is proven to be reliable and he even he purposes when he begins to write his gospel to search things out in Luke chapter 1 verse 3 it seemed fitting for me as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning Luke wasn't going to be any man's fool and so he purposes to investigate and he gives to his details, and where you can check Luke out with other historians, things that we know of, he proves correct every single time. So let me ask you are the, are the gospel writers reliable? And the honest question of that would have to be if we can trust them time after time after time in every other detail. Why should we be unwilling to trust them in this detail simply because it's something that we can't imagine happening? Which explains something of the critics' real problem. Those who would come to text just as we consider this text today, they'll come to such texts and they'll say, this just can't be so Why are Christians, why are these people who call themselves Christians so willing to be so gullible about this kind of nonsense? And that's if they're speaking in kind terms. And so we find that the real problem of a critic is not historical reliability. It is not whether or not you can trust those who have recorded these things for us. Rather, what you have in the minds of most today, you have a rejection of anything that is supernatural because of the age in which we live. You have a bias toward naturalism. In other words, we want to be able to explain thing, every, everything scientifically. Those things that we can observe, those things that we can test to some degree. These are the things that we can believe. It's, it's provable time after time after time. And you come to the scriptures and it's got these things, these things that, miracles that happen. We need to be careful. And swallowing that type thing is the mentality that goes with that. There is a suspicion of anyone prior to the 20th century who writes as a historian. Especially when you're dealing with some of the older historians in 2,000 years ago. That's pretty old, isn't it? You know, back in the days when those guys, they wrote with this, with this bias towards seeing God in so many things. Especially coming from a Jewish background, as Matthew did. They had this bias. They saw God in everything. You know? And So now we are unbiased. We see God in nothing, Right? There's a rejection of anything that is supernatural. These men wrote as those who were—they were gullible. They were naive. And then it all comes down to this: that the real problem for the critic is that he walks in a spiritual darkness, and he cannot—he cannot. He cannot Embrace the truths, because if these things be true. If Jesus, in fact, was conceived in the womb of a virgin and born to a virgin. This is noteworthy. And if one follows the, the life of Jesus, it places a demand upon them. And the conclusion would have to be this. This one is God. God. And Paul reminds us in his letter to the church at Corinth there in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, that there is none who says Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. So the natural man looks at these things because of the implications. He's not going to do it. Because if the implication would be this one is more than just an ordinary man. He warrants my attention he warrants my consideration. And if you, you consider him, the records that are given to us through the scriptures, the conclusion is this. He is Lord. He is God. That's the conclusion you've got to come to. So the natural man is the critic. The real problem is a spiritual issue. So what's the significance of this supernatural conception? is this, that Jesus is what the old theologians have called the God-Man. Jesus is this God-Man. He has within Himself the nature of deity as the Son of God, therefore being one who is without sin. But He also has within Him the nature of humanity, being born of a woman. It was necessary that He be born of a woman to be part of the human race. If you didn't come from a woman, you're not human. So he was born, conceived within the womb of Mary. So he's presented to us in scriptures as an absolutely unique person in human history. And if we deny either nature... If we deny the divine nature of Jesus Christ, or if we deny the human nature of Jesus Christ, then we strip Jesus of his suitability to save the lost. It was necessary in order for him to do a saving work. We're going to consider in a few minutes that he be God and that he be man. He had to be both. So this distinguishes Christianity from... Other religions, because the Christian message is this In Jesus Christ, God came. I'm amazed at times at the people I hear saying that in this season, and you do hear it a lot. You hear a lot of other things going on now, too, but you still hear people who will make reference to Jesus and even make reference to Him being God. I'm thinking, When I hear some of the people say that, and I know something of the life, I'm wondering, does not that begin to grip you? Doesn't that strike you as being of some significance? And what have you done with it? What have you done with this one who is God? He is not a mere philosopher. He did not come, as some would like, to to portray him as as a revolutionary, to come and to change everything. He came as God Himself. He came as the Lord, and if God has come in the person of Jesus Christ, it warrants serious consideration, and it it is due a response that is fitting of the Lord. It's fitting that men come to Jesus and worship. It's fitting. And it is not fitting to do anything less. We have nothing more than a mere sentimental respect and appreciation. We've not grasped this thing. And that's the message that we convey to people. We're called to come into to worship. Come and worship this one who is God and who is man. This supernatural conception. Also, we see the scriptural confirmation here that takes place by the coming of this Christ at the first advent, the first coming of Christ. Now, Matthew's account here, back in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 and following. Matthew's account directs the reader, directs us as readers, but also the first readers, to a consideration of the Old Testament Scriptures. When When we think about Jesus' first coming, first of all, we see it in this angelic message that comes to Joseph, verse 21. Look here in verse 21. She will bear a son... And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Note here, first of all, that when when the angel speaks speaks to Joseph, verse 20, he says, Joseph, son of David. What's so significant about that? If nothing else, it would have been a reminder to Joseph... Who, in fact, was a descendant of David. It was a reminder to, to Joseph that there was a promise throughout the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament prophecies insist upon the Davidic line for the Messiah. That's a requirement for this one who is coming to the Messiah. He must be one that can be traced back to David through his genealogy. So, we have Matthew's genealogy traces the Davidic line to Joseph. And he does that very thing here in chapter 1, verse, chapter one, verse 6. Jesse, the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon. And on it goes down to get to, to Joseph, verse 16. So, we have this genealogy, this Davidic line being traced here. But why is that so important? Why is this Davidic line so important? Well, it's important because we see through the Old Testament a covenant that God made, a promise that God made with David. Back in 2nd Samuel chapter 7 verse 16. 2nd Samuel chapter 7 verse 16. And actually the covenant is much broader than this, but I'm just going to focus here. Second Samuel chapter seven verse sixteen. This is the promise here of the Lord to David in the covenant that He made with David. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before Me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That's the promise that God has made to David. And then we see this repeated in places, time after time, through the Old Testament. Look in Psalm chapter Psalm eighty nine. Psalm eighty-nine, verses three and four: I have made a covenant with my ch- with my chosen; I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Then Psalm chapter the same Psalm verse uh, thirty-six. His descendants, back up to verse 35, Once I have sworn in my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established before forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. So God's promise to David there in, in the covenant in Second Sam, but also mentioned throughout the Old Testament, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Which we read here just earlier today. Isaiah nine verse seven There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace, or on the throne of David on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and uprightness. So here again the throne of David being mentioned in Isaiah chapter eleven. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of, who? Jesse. Who's Jesse? Father of David. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The very verses that Jesus applies to himself. When he identifies, he reads from this passage in the synagogue and he says, This day the scripture is fulfilled. So identified here as the the son of Jesse, or the the branch from his roots, but of course Jesse being the father of David. And then Jeremiah thirty-three, Jeremiah thirty-three, verses fourteen and following. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. He shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So again there, well, let's read verse one more. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. So here again, they have the promises throughout the Old Testament, the promises that are being fulfilled, that are in fact fulfilled through Jesus Christ with this Messiah. Now, I understand there are are different variations of interpretation, application of Old Testament text concerning the Messiah. Very simply, I'll say this. That the promises that are given to Israel in the Old Testament are all fulfilled literally or... Far better. In other words, it's not to be interpreted literal, but the promises are fulfilled in a far better way. So we don't look at the promises that are through the Old Testament, these promises that are made to the nation of Israel necessarily to be understood as literal. We understand that there's a, a much higher throne than the throne of David that Christ sits upon. But it's far better than having a throne on a plot of real estate in the Middle East with a king on it. You have the king in heaven. So the promises given to Israel to the Old Testament are either fulfilled literally or far better, are far better to the church. To the church. And so, when we read these promises throughout the Old Testament here, and this promise of one to sit on your throne, the promise is Is Jesus sitting on the throne of David? Of course not. Is is Jesus sitting in in the Middle East, in the city of Jerusalem, on a throne? Of course not. But he is seated upon a far greater throne. That's the throne of David pictured. And he is on that throne now. And he is on that throne forever. And so that the promises given to Israel are fulfilled to the church today. There's the throne of David. And it's far better than a literal throne of David. That's the throne where Jesus now sits. But there's still this expectation of this. He must be a descendant. Of David continues. Even in the Old Testament, Matthew 1 1, we've read that, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David. If he's not the son of David, he does not qualify to be the Messiah. He must be of the descendant of of David. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27, some of the encounters that we see here in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 9, verse 27. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, Who, Son of David. They recognized something about this one. This is the Messiah. Have mercy on us, Son of David. Matthew chapter 12, verse 23. The crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the Son of David, can he? What is it? It's a messianic title. That's being that's very common in Jesus' day. The title for the Messiah in their day was Son of David. And so, the question is, can this cannot be the Son of David, can it? Matthew chapter fifteen. Verse twenty-two, and a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, "Have mercy on me, Lord, Son of David! Have mercy on me, Son of David!" And in Matthew twenty-two, verse forty-four. The Lord said to my Lord here, reading, reading, or quoting from the Psalms, "Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet." If David then calls him Lord, which David prophetically does in the Psalms, how is he his son? How is this Messiah who is to be the son of David? That's your messianic title, and properly so. How is it that God, did David? calls him Lord when he speaks of him in the Old Testament. And then the emphasis continues even as far over. We'll get to look just very quickly at one more place. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Regarding the gospel that Paul proclaims verse beginning verse 1 Paul a bond servant of Christ Jesus called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scripture concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh So what's the point in all this? Do we have years of Old Testament revelation God's redemptive history being fulfilled in Christ so when Joseph hears those words by this angelic messenger just comes to him and he says Joseph son of David it ought to click this could be what this claims to be because I am a descendant of David let me pay attention but what else does he hear Verses 20 and 21, it here. It says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your child. Listen to the wording here. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. I don't think that you could hear the words come from this angel as he heard Child who has been conceived in her for the Holy Spirit, she will bear a son. And I don't think that anyone, who lived in, in this day, with any measure of Messianic expectation, which they had, and as certainly as as the power of Rome came crushing down more and more and more, there was that hope and that anticipation. This. Hope that the Messiah would come soon. So they lived in a day of great anticipation. I don't think anyone could hear those words without their mind being directed to the scriptures of Isaiah 9 6. Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Here in verse 20, the child who has been conceived in her of the Holy Spirit, she will bear a son. Certainly, at least there are some overtones here. Isaiah 9, 6. So we see it in the angelic message to Joseph, this consideration of the Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled here. But also we see it in Matthew's application. The application that Matthew makes of what's what's transpiring here. Verses 22 and following. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Here is how Matthew interprets and applies the events that are taking place. The prophets of the Old Testament have foretold that this will take place. And here it is. These things are happening. So that what was spoken through the prophet. So what does he do? He quotes there in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son that shall call his name Emmanuel. Which is translated means God with us. Quoting there Isaiah chapter 9 verse Verse six. I'm sorry. It's chapter seven, verse fourteen. Isaiah chapter seven, verse fourteen. So what we have here, and and this this portion of our text here, is the first of many times that Matthew sets forth this pattern of saying that the scriptures have, are being fulfilled by what's taking place. Now, why is that important? Again, who's he writing to? Jewish, Jewish audience. It's important that this Messiah, whom they are looking for, he's got some things he's got to fulfill. And so Matthew says, here it is. It's taking place. The fulfillment of the Scriptures is taking place time after time after time after time. In fact, you have it five times. Five times in the first two chapters of Matthew. Five times. Where he speaks something along the lines of, "This took place so that the, what the prophet said or the scriptures might be fulfilled," and it's repeated many times throughout Matthew's gospel. So again, the message to Joseph here would be, "Son of David, you're the one. You're the one." You have been chosen for this task. You qualify as a son of David. The Scripture is being fulfilled. And so the message is reemphasized to the readers by Matthew is, as we read it that the Old Testament expected one, this Messiah, he's coming in Christ. He has come. So, what's the significance of this? Is this the person and the work of Jesus Christ is clearly the centerpiece of Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament, you have the Old Testament foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And then you have, in our New Testament, of course they didn't have they it was being written then. But we have in the New Testament the record of the life of Jesus given to us in the Gospels. And then you have the continuation of His work through the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And then you have the explanation, the interpretation, the application of His work through Paul's letters and the promise of His return. But it's all about, all revolves around the person of Jesus Christ from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelations. Book of Revelation. Jesus, when He speaks of the Old Testament in John chapter 5 verse 39, He says this, These testify about Me. You go to the Old Testament Scriptures, search the Scriptures, you think that you have eternal life, they speak of Me. That's what He says. And so, if you're going to the Old Testament Scriptures and you're coming away with anything other than the centrality of Jesus Christ, and He's standing right here in front of you, you're missing it. And it's exactly what happened in Jesus' day. Jesus says in Luke chapter 24 or 27 as as He's walking with these two men on the road to Emmaus, and. He asks them what they're discussing. And they said, well, haven't you heard what's been going around here? And Jesus opens up the Scripture. He says He explains the things concerning Himself found in the Old Testament Scriptures. So what we have here are thousands of years of divine revelation of God's redemptive history. Given to us in types, given to us in symbolic representatives, given to us throughout old testament prophecies, and in many other ways. And all of these things are culminated in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And then you have an example here of Matthew and Matthew chapter one or cha- yeah, chapter two. Matthew chapter two verse fifteen. We see something of the Christology that's in the Old Testament here. It says, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken out of the mouth, spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And listen to this. Out of Egypt, I called my son. I don't know if you have read that lately. It's right out of Hosea 11.1. 1. You know what? If you're reading Hosea 11 and you read that, there is nothing. And reading that, that would make you think, ah, oh, this is speaking of Christ. If you were reading Hosea, you wouldn't come to that conclusion. Yet Matthew, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quotes what to us would be, you're forcing this. <laughs> you know, you're forcing Christ into the Old Testament here, Matthew. Matthew. <laughs> And I think we would have to be careful. I don't think this gives us license, incidentally, to go to the Old Testament and all of a sudden we find Jesus Christ everywhere and everything. But I think it does help us in our reading and understanding of the Old Testament. There is a there is a Christ centrality to that message that permeates all through and through. And that Matthew just picks out this little phrase here, out of Egypt I've called my son and and if you're reading that in the book of Hosea, you're thinking, if I were to go to Hosea 11:1 and preach this is about Christ, you would probably say, You have missed that text altogether. And you're probably right. But because of the inspiration of the Spirit of God, I realize there's something there. That Christ is through the old testament scriptures through and through. So, if that be the case. If the cent- central theme, if the message of the Old Testament scriptures is the person and the work of Jesus Christ, if the central theme of the New Testament scriptures, which is pretty clear in our day, is the person and the work of Jesus Christ, doesn't it lead us to the conclusion that this person's pretty significant, pretty significant event? A pretty important birth taking place here in Bethlehem. And if all the scripture revolves around him, that warrants consideration. So so we simply affirm the message of scripture when we say that. When we say Christ is all through the Old Testament. And I grant sometimes it's harder to see than others. We simply affirm the message has been revealed to us. And that our faith is well-grounded in thousands of years of divine revelation. What You want to know the essence of the Christian faith? It's through the scriptures. And the essence of the scriptures? Found, culminated in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And finally, we want to think about the Salvation Commission. The text reminds us here that Jesus' coming was filled with significance. It wasn't just incidental. It wasn't, I think, as I mentioned last week, just a friendly visit. How you guys doing down here? Thought I'd come and live among you for a while and see what it's like down here. It's not that. It reminds us there was a significance, there was a purpose in His coming. Something of which is revealed in His names here. We see, first of all, in verse 21... She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Which means, which is God our salvation. He will save his people from their sins. God our salvation. He, God, will save his people from their sins. And then, verse 23, quoting here from the Old Testament Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall. Bear a son, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And it's here, it's not just the idea of God here in our presence with us in that sense, but there's more to it than that, that it's the idea that God is here for us. He is here on our behalf, not just here to be with us, but he is here to help us, to deliver us. So it reveals to us two realities here. One is that this is more than just a man, it is God. This is God our salvation. This is God who will come, who has come to save his people from their sins. But also it reveals to us this that God must deliver us. That we need help outside ourselves for deliverance from the real issues of life, the real problems that we face. Because the real problem that we face is sin. Alienation from God. So God must deliver us. And so God sends his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that there is no other name by which men must be saved. That's the gospel message. Because only in Christ has God come. So Jesus comes, not a friendly visit, not just an exemplary moral example, moral lesson to follow, because visits and moral lessons do not help sinners. If he were simply to come and to visit, he would do nothing more than condemn us in our sin, and rightfully so. And if He were to give us nothing more than moral lessons, it does nothing more than mask our sins. Hide your sin under a life of morality and goodness when inside your heart there's corruptness and vileness. So the visits and lessons don't save sinners. God saves sinners by dying for them. Laying down His life for them. He came to save sinners and accomplished it by living a sinless life, by dying a substitutionary death, and by rising a victorious conqueror over death. There's the gospel. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death. And He raised, He was resurrected from the dead because of, so to give us victory. That's the resurrection. That's the gospel. And we need all of that. So if this claim be true, that verse 21, that he will save his people from their sins, that's a pretty significant event, isn't it? There hasn't been anyone else born that can save people from their sins. The best we can all do is pay for our own. But because Jesus was God, because he entered the human race not by ordinary generation, did not have an earthly father, therefore He did not have the, the sinful nature of an earthly father, He entered this human race and died for His people to save His people from their sins. That's pretty significant. That's worth thinking about. That's worth having not just one day a year. That's worth giving some thought to year-round, isn't it? The incarnation of Christ. God with us. So is it Jesus' birth, His conception, is it important? Well, He's God. How important is that? The Holy Scriptures from beginning unto end are about Him. So, how important is that? And this is the only hope of salvation to the human race. So, how important is that? It's pretty important, isn't it? So, the message that we proclaim. As I mentioned at the first of the message here. It's demanding. It's a demanding message. It says forsake all and follow Christ. Repent, turn from yourself, believe in Him. See Christ as your only hope of salvation. It's demanding. But it's appropriate. When you consider who Jesus is, it's appropriate to ask, to call people to forsake your measly, sin-filled life and gain Christ. Father, we thank You for Your Son. And Lord, we thank You that You, you sent Him. And Lord, we confess that there's a lot of things that have distortion this time of year. But we thank you that it does not remove the reality of, of what's been revealed in the scriptures to us. That God has come, as you've promised, even from the book of Genesis. And he's come to, to save. His people. And we thank you for that. So would you not graciously and kindly impress these deeper and deeper upon our hearts these days. And we confess that much of the distractions around us is of our own making. But may Christ be our treasure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.